0: the fourth episode of Open Source Craft. Um, The world runs on open source, so we speak to the people who shape the world. I'm Greg Pollock, and today we're here with Bill Weinberg. Um, We're actually in Dr. Phillips, which is a part of Orlando here in Florida. Um, thank you for letting us use your home. And it's my
1: pleasure. Thank you for coming in. Welcome to
0: the show. Um, he is currently a senior director and analyst for open source strategy at the Linux Foundation. He started his career in computational linguistics, worked a lot in technical marketing, was the senior director of open source strategy for Black Duck Software for three years, and he ran his own open source consulting business called Linux Pundit for 17 years. So your career like, has been open source.
1: For the last coming up on twenty years, pretty exclusively. That's awesome. What what drives you? What are you most passionate about? Well, open source is fascinating. It, it's so broad. I mean, there's over a million projects out there, and and more all the time. Not not just forks on uh, GitHub. There's real real diversification, real projects, real dynamics. And so, what I love about what I do for the Linux Foundation is just. I get to talk to developers of all stripes and business people who are figuring out how to monetize open source, how to build new products, how to um, innovate, which is an overused term, but it's, it's really what's going on. The variety is just huge. And it's, I've seen it change. I've seen open source be the outlier. Uh, as re- I'll say as recently as you know, 2005 to becoming the mainstream way of doing things. I don't think of open source as a technology as much as it is a methodology for getting work done. Mm, A
0: methodology for getting work done. And you basically get paid to go into enterprises to show them how to leverage open source to
1: improve their businesses. Well, we work with enterprises today. That seems to be the emphasis of people coming to us. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, my consulting work has been around uh, tech companies. That would be semiconductor vendors, device manufacturers, um, the, the people that started out working with open source and contributing to open source. So, you know, the Intels and Qualcomms of the world and, and big vertically integrated um, manufacturers like, uh, you know, Samsung and people like that. And we've seen that they were the early adopters. They've appreciated a lot of value from open source over the years, they've helped make it oh, ubiquitous. And then we're seeing today the second wave that enterprise IT is increasingly building its value, whether just for internal use or whether they're shipping mobile apps to their customers or deploying applications and containers for their ecosystem. I mean, enterprise is doing a lot now with open source. And it's the second wave. Enterprise companies, according to the last year's Future of Open Source survey, are probably building their stacks with between 50 and 80% open source code, which is a huge change from even five years ago. And that's the next wave. And so a lot of the technologies we're seeing now are less, it's not that they're not interesting to tech companies, but they're front and center for enterprise. I mean, the whole containerization explosion has to do with enterprise.
0: Mm, Cool. So you were saying you would go into tech companies that were already using open source. What would you help them do? Oh,
1: many different things. Um, I mean, our consulting practice as it stands today, in many ways, you know, the mix changes, but the individual practices are still very strong. So one of the things that I pioneered in the practice I have today and actually at Black Duck and places before with Alliance, which is the predecessor as an organization to this consulting organization, um, would be legacy migration. Legacy migration. So legacy migration is sort of the once in future promise of open source, but people didn't know how to get there. And there are different ways to look at migrating from legacy proprietary code to open source alternatives. It's not just, oh, let's go try this. You know, I have database X and I'm going to move to MySQL or PostgreSQL. You have to look at it in the context of how they're using it. What's the financial model for how they're using it? Will they actually save any money by moving? Because in some cases, they're acquiring their proprietary software in what's called an all-you-can-eat contract. And so migrating one piece of it actually costs them more, not less. Okay, so you're saying you'd go into companies, they'd say, hey, we have this proprietary
0: database, we're consider, considering moving it to open source, can you help us figure out if
1: we should and how? Is that That's, right? Absolutely, we would either look just at their overall portfolio, so it wouldn't just be databases, it would be embedded operating systems, middleware, um, uh, compilers, development tools, IDEs, um, whole operating systems the whole stacks, you you name it. It had many different scopes. So it's like, how can we use open source to make our business more successful? And Absolutely. bring you in and... But this you know, would be a very specific replacement or migration. Legacy offer. migration. Yeah. I yeah. mean, certainly companies would come and ask us, how can I use it oh, I see. in a more general way? Right. But you were talking more just specifically about we have our proprietary code. Where do we go from here? Right. Okay. Now, sometimes it's... Equally often is that we have proprietary code... Um, what would be a good way for us to make this open? We want to make it open for any one of 100 reasons. I mean, more often yeah. than not, it's to reduce their cost by sharing the maintenance overhead. Or it's they just think it's a good idea, and we help them understand whether it is a good idea or not.
0: Mm. Okay, great. And uh, what, would, what was your first sort of contact with open source?
1: Well, it goes pretty far back. In <laughs> the early 90s, I was working for a company called Microtech Research that's now a division of Mentor Graphics. And we made compilers and debuggers. And I was in charge of product marketing. And even in that time frame, we were starting to see GNU compilers crop up and cause us some commercial challenges. So, so I you had the proprietary compiler. We were it was before compilers were commodities. Okay. We had proprietary compilers and debuggers. And then all of a sudden GNU starts popping up, an open source compiler. It started cropping up on its own, but also because some companies in the embedded OS business, mm-hmm. who didn't care about commoditizing compilers, began bundling GNU with their development toolkits. Mm. And so it was disruptive to the market. And my management sat down with me and said, tell us about this GNU thing. <laughs> so I went to Cygnus Systems which is now part of Red Hat, was acquired by Red Hat, I think in 2000. And um, they were supplying support and integration for uh, for the GNU compilers, um, for some low-level monitors and early embedded operating systems. And um, I got a support contract and I went and got a tape of GCC (laughs) because I couldn't download it in those days, and I built it, and I started analyzing, and it was fascinating. I was impressed on one hand how good it was, Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately I wrote a white paper about it, and that white paper surfaced a couple years ago in the hands of someone in our industry who rolled it up and beat me over the head with it saying, look what you wrote, and it, (laughs) it, it was a very precise analysis of what GCC was good at and what it wasn't good at circa 1992. So this was your
0: company saying, what is this? You need to investigate. You went and got the code. You did the report for them Mm -hmm. so they could figure out what to do with that information? Well, it was a competitive analysis originally.
1: Right, okay. And what did they end up doing with it? Um, Making the proprietary tools better at that point in time. Okay. It didn't result in that company um, embracing open source in any real way. In fact... um, only recently did that division of MetroGraphics Graphics begin investing heavily in open source. I mean, now they have their own embedded Linux platform and a bunch of things like that, but they still have proprietary tools and OSs.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I pulled some quotes off of your um, LinkedIn profile. It, I thought they were great. Um, Nick Yates, who's an open source business strategist, said that your vast experience and knowledge of open source from its early days through the present is impressive and, and irreplaceable. Bill possesses a very strategic and long-term vision, which he utilizes to the benefit of his clients. He can and does draw examples and proof points from 20 years in the industry and is the best man to build and explain open source strategy to a team of execs. I guess that goes with what you were explaining earlier about you can help these big companies
1: figure out how to leverage open source to improve their businesses. Nick's a great guy. He works at Red Hat. And he also, he's worked in some other uh, companies, like an open source product product manager. He and I worked on a really interesting strategy project with uh, the armed forces and military contractors trying to see if we could teach the contractors how to collaborate better and use open source methodologies to deliver um, software. was actually an aircraft platform faster and more efficiently. Mm -hmm. and it had a lot of challenges because the military contracting universe doesn't like to collaborate at all yeah
0: that's a good point that is that is kind of an industry where you have to imagine people are
1: constantly reinventing the wheel and they're being very well paid for it there's not a lot of incentive to share code but the armed forces themselves are keenly interested in open source and of the efficiencies it confers and so there was some arm twisting and there was some resistance and we got a certain amount of the way along and you know contract dollars eventually run out, so we feel like we did our, our best and we went on to the next project. But the biggest problem was they were really looking to do something akin to inner source in a closed community for the code they were producing. we can talk about inner source if you want at some what point. Inner source is applying the principles and practices of open source. So developing in your organization behind the firewall. Right, because I'm sure you're like, what do you say
0: to the five-star general that says, open source, we want to give our enemies access
1: to our code? Well, The military, actually through DISA, the Defense Information, I forget what DISA stands for, look it up. Uh, They have embraced open source big time. They're actually a, a superb philosophy. But it's more has to do with the terms of employment of military development contractors. If you try to, one of the principles of working on open source is that in some portion of your non-project specific free time, you're going to go off and work on a project, contribute to it, roam the fields of open source, learn about new code. But if you're a contractor to a defense contractor, a sub, 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 basically your entire technical day is uh, prescribed to you by the terms of your contract. And they're not writing in, I'm going to go work on this shared project. And if it's not in there, you're not paid for it, you're not allowed to do it. And so we spent a lot of time talking to contract officers in the Air Force to try to convince them to change the practices that they used when dealing with their subcontractors and sub-subcontractors.
0: So you want them to build into the contract that part of your time can be used contributing back to open source. So you really want them to like... Don't reinvent the wheel. Go find the open source projects for one that you can bring into your well, Consuming
1: isn't the issue. Okay. It's contributing, managing, participating. So don't just pull the projects, yeah. but contribute back to them. I mean, having worked in Embedded and looking at enterprise, con- consumption is the first step to embracing open source. And there isn't an industry that doesn't consume at least some open source. And many, you know, 90% of their stacks are open source today.
0: So it's about convincing them about the value of not just consuming, Mm -hmm. but also giving back. Okay, so let's for a moment, I think there's probably some people watching that work in organizations that do exactly that, they pull the open source work, but I can't convince my boss to give me any time to actually contribute back and it'd be valuable if we could. How
1: do you convince the boss of the value of contributing back? Well, let me give you a real basic example that happens all the time in embedded systems, very concrete. So, you know, you make a widget and the widget's based on Linux or another piece of embedded open source software. And part of your job as a developer, if you're in the platform group, is to get a version of embedded Linux to work on your hardware. So your system might be based on a spin of ARM from one of 200 ARM licensees. You probably got your development code straight from Arm or one of their licensees, somebody like Qualcomm or somebody like that. And then you have to customize it for your application at a very low level, as well as writing application code for differentiation up higher where people can see it. Mm -hmm. Well, those customizations are a fork of the Linux you received, which is a fork of the tree at kernel.org. And as new releases come out, your fork Diverges more and more incrementally over time from the mainline. Mm-hmm. And so when new features come out, you're going to have to port them, essentially backport them to your platform unless you have an agile organization who can track the evolution moving forward. If some of those changes are major patches to the way you know interrupts are handled, or they're device drivers that are particular to your application and no one's done them yet in the mainline, or you have bug fixes to Uh, existing code in the Linux kernel, you will spend a lot less money and time maintaining a fork, which is non-productive. It will also slow you down from adopting new versions of the Linux kernel, and I'll use that as the example. You can apply this to any project. And so you save money by upstreaming. You save, but you're not simply going to throw these patches over the wall and see that uh, they're not necessarily going to be integrated the way you submitted them or from, from an unknown source. So you also want to be cultivating your relationships in the communities that surround the projects. To do that, you can't just live in a box and consume. You have to be out there in the communities because you'll be very frustrated if, you know, classic thing, I've been talking to a couple companies about why isn't community X taking my patches? And if you're not active in the community, they don't know who you are, and or if your company has not embraced the culture of that particular community, there will be a lot lower chance of you being able to participate, of you being able to submit your technology upstream. And you'll end up maintaining a fork and spending more money on open source than you might even on proprietary code. Okay, let me see
0: if I can... Um, that was a lot. That's uh... yeah, that good. No, That's really interesting. So if I was to go to my boss, I would say, okay, so, so listen, it's great that we were able to pull this source code down, but we've made changes here, so customizations for the use of our product, and If I don't take the time as a developer to take those changes and try to get them back Into the main source code into the main branch of this project. What's going to happen is New features are going to be released the it's going to get to 2.0 3.0 and it's going to take me a lot of time to then take that 3.0 code Integrate it back into the original fork that I created yeah, if you can do it at all if you can do it at all right and then um, And Make it all work But if I have time every week when we make changes we make improvements to contribute back to it then It's gonna be a lot easier for us to get improvements and bug fixes and we can bring them in really easy It's not going to take as much maintenance time so that's really why it's really important but and I what you're saying though is it's it's not quite good enough to just contribute code back and throw it against the wall and throw out this pull request and, and try to contribute because or to you just al- send in feature requests unsolicited. Right. So you also need
1: to take time to be a good community member. Well, the, what defines a good community member is situational. Um, one of my favorite project maintainers, who, uh, Andrew Morton, who used to be Linus's right hand, back in the days of um, 2.5, 2.6, the Linux kernel, and who's still a very important community member, whenever he got up to talk about what it means to be a good community member, he said, first and foremost, know the people in the community. Go to events. Have a beer with them. That if you don't have at least a semblance of a personal relationship with your peers in the community, it's going to be a lot harder. Just sitting down with someone even once is the first step to creating trust. So interesting. So you can say open
0: source isn't just about code. It's about the community. It's, it's about, about
1: people. People, yeah, communication. I have a client now who's a very respected global company, really strong. And their approach to community participation is, I have, a, you know, they have a representative to this project. And the representative is a corporate representative whose badge and logo is the most important thing, not their individual experience or or interaction with that community, and in fact, it's a revolving door. So, one day it could be employee X, the next day it could be employee Y, and they're having a horrible time interacting with these communities, and they're very frustrated that they can't get their patches taken up. Now, there's a bunch of technical reasons as well, but the first starting reason is that, that they're used to being... Considered on the basis of their brand and corporate reputation and open-source the dynamics are about the individuals and the quality of the developer and their relationships with the community and Those are not strictly speaking compatible concepts Yeah, that's fascinating Um, That's great.
0: Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, one thing I'm currently learning about is really the roles of the organizations like the Linux Foundation, and mm-hmm. how they got started, and what their vision is, and what role they play in all
1: of this. Well, glibly, I say there's two kinds of community organizations. There's organic, and there's dot .organic. And so there's those that are the classic start in a garage, like the person you, was, you were telling me about the other day who wrote some libraries and things. And they made their way into open source by creating code and getting it out there and with some luck and perseverance a community grew up around of users and their project got used and there were um, pull requests and it it made its way through the universe. For every one of those there's 200 that die on the vine. Oh yeah, definitely. Now when a project like that reaches a certain level of maturity or when a technology is coming out of a corporation as its first step. The alternative is to form a foundation, a .org. So you have organic and .organic. And so you see the .organic approach being incredibly successful in organizations like the Apache Foundation, for example, just to name another one, or the Eclipse Foundation, which came out of IBM, can't have anything more corporate than that, and is incredibly successful and has hundreds of projects underneath it. And the Linux Foundation had a bit of both. So the Linux Foundation... Started in um, wait, wait
0: wait hold on, the goal the shared goal of all these organizations is to
1: is to create value through collaboration. Okay, and help for like help open source communities thrive. Yes, okay. I mean the Linux Foundation in particular, and I won't dwell on it if you want me to. Started out as the sponsor for the Linux kernel. And one of the most important things that we do, we did then, and we do now, is what does sponsor mean? Well, payliness a salary, among other things. Okay. And sponsor conferences, and fund development projects, and do marketing, and do strategy, um, and bring in major users so that their voices can be heard, but in a in a in an organic way. It's not because. Now, a lot of people fear that the foundations work in a pay-to-play, so somebody buys themselves a seat on the board and suddenly they control the project. That's not how they work. That's not how we work. That's not how Apache or anyone else works. And in fact, that's pretty dysfunctional um, mm-hmm. foundational approach. No, it's that commercial organizations, large enterprise customers, for example, or large technology companies, will spend a lot internally to manage their integration and use uh, of a given open-source technology. And they'll have limited access to the community that that develops it and will have some constraints on their participation. And the foundations provide a forum that give more structure to roadmaps, to funding development, to dealing with issues of... among communities. Um, the I mean part of it is it provides a more standardized way to commercialize at the highest level. And while there's a certain resistance in, in the community think of the free software attitude towards, well, we don't, you know, we don't need no stinking corporations. <laughs> Open source is only where it is because of serving corporations and corporate participation. I mean, when you go look at um, Jonathan Corbett's annual studies of who contributes the most, um, those folks are not individuals in garages. They work for Red Hat and Intel and IBM, mm. and they're doing it as part of their corporate strategies. That doesn't mean they don't behave like traditional um, com- community members. They do, but they're doing it in a corporate context. They're doing it, in- and the lovely thing is, the, the trouble with the garage model is it's hard to pay the bills. But if you're doing it in a corporate setting, well, it's your day job. Your company is actually paying you at one level or another to participate in this community and to contribute to it. And okay, wow. Like, how amazing would it be to work
0: for somebody that not only understands the value of open source code, but the value of actually being a community participant.
1: hmm And so there's no reason to feel alarmed at... Corporate participation. I mean, it's a fact of life, right. and it's it's a positive for large projects. And yeah. corporations launch small projects all the time, and they move forward. In fact, that's one of the things we help some of our larger customers and some of our larger members in the Linux Foundation do is decide if and when to launch something as a new project.
0: Mm. Oh, right. So yeah, you're helping the uh, the corporate uh, the companies decide when it's time. Here we have this proprietary code. Should we launch it as an open-source project? How should we do it? What does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Cool. Um, did you, you answer how it started? How, the, how it, at the very oh, beginning? Oh, the
1: Linux Foundation? Yeah. Well, it started in 2007 okay. with the merger of two pre-existing foundation type uh, nonprofits. One was Open Source Development Lab, where I actually worked at the time. And the other was the Free Standards Group, FSG, who was best known at the time as the creator of the Linux standards base, LSB, which was the definition of what was Linux. So at the time, OSDL was responsible for the same kind of things of supporting development of the Linux kernel, Mm -hmm. subsidizing development in one way or another and promoting it and at the time, being the keepers of the faith, because circa 2003, 2004, Microsoft was the enemy. Now, Microsoft is a good friend. Of open source <laughs> things have changed, and we actually helped that change.
0: Oh, We'd love to hear more about that because I totally have seen that change. That they
1: they wanted to make a change. That, so, how did that how did that happen? It was incremental, and when they realized that open source in general wasn't a threat, that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. A thing, but a development methodology that they could take advantage of, and that many of their new introductions needed open source in a big way, they changed their whole approach to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there, you, you could look at many, many initiatives. I mean, they started out with um, what was then called what, uh, Outer Curve, and in fact, an ex manager of mine used to run Outer Curve, Paul Hunter. And um, most interestingly to me, was when they launched um, Azure. Mm -hmm. They made a commitment to having a large cohort supported, a large cohort of open source projects supported in Azure at launch time because they knew they wouldn't get the migration to it if they didn't have versions of Linux and 80 or 90 other common projects. You know, there were databases, middleware, frameworks, so that it wouldn't present a barrier to entry not having support for that. And so that was an interesting project they worked on, as looking, and we had a little something to do with that. <laughs> and since then, there have been lots of incremental projects. And I mean, the most, one of the biggest watersheds for Microsoft was they became, for a period of time, the largest contributor to Linux because they needed it to run on their virtual machines. So they were patching the runtime environment so that it would run better under an Azure and uh, and Microsoft's VM environments. Wow. And you know, that was unheard of. And so back in, in the old days at OSDL, um, we had to counter in the media all the time. We were doing lots of PR and aggressive counter marketing because Microsoft and everyone else was just trying to put Linux in a box and bury the box. <laughs> so the world has changed. We were, we were scrappy then. Today we're more strategic and encompassing. Yeah, yeah that's great.
0: Um, we talked a little bit earlier um, about any stories you tell people revolving around open source. You want to talk a little bit about anything? That, that, and you brought up
1: there was a, there was a murder. <laughs> well, way back when, let's see, this must have been 2003, I think. There was uh, one of the early journaling file systems for Linux, the Riser FS, uh, when, when I was at Monta Vista, uh, we actually had it in our package set, because uh, there weren't a lot of available journaling file systems, EXT 3 and 4 hadn't appeared yet, for example. And so, it was an important file system, and Hans Reiser, this um, German living in the U.S., um, had married um, a woman that I, I don't remember exactly, I think she was a Russian mail-order bride. Oh my gosh. Not to disparage any of those things. But that's <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, did, they had apparently a, a very rocky marriage and um, she disappeared, having to do, I think, with custody of a child or something, and all they found was his car in the Berkeley Hills with one of the seats missing from it. And uh, nobody was ever found, and there were all these rumors going around that the location of her remains was hidden in the source code and comments to Riser FS. Oh my but no one ever discovered what it was, <laughs> and it caused a lot of consternation in open source community in general and Linux community in particular. And um, he was eventually prosecuted, I don't remember the particulars of the actual trial, but uh, yeah, he ended up in jail. Oh, That's yeah. the weirdest story. There's plenty of benign and fun stories that don't involve <laughs> murder and school buggery. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. Anything you want? Anything else you want to share, or should we move on?
1: There's, I mean, having worked in embedded, there's so many wonderful application stories of people using open source, you know, to power uh, spacecraft and you know, up and coming equipment and all sorts of new paradigms. And it's certainly having open source led to a huge explosion in more intelligent devices, starting around 2001. Is this the open source renaissance? Well, I don't... The Renaissance implies a classical period and a, uh, a dark ages between. I don't think we quite recapitulate that part of history. Okay.
0: Um, is there anything in the open source community that really bothers you?
1: You mentioned about Europe blackmailing or something. There's um, there's some people that take advantage of... Uncertainty and challenges in compliance, and over the years, have held companies hostage based on their claims of um, uh, the pro- dealing with the provenance of code and whether people are conforming correctly to the more reciprocal licenses like GPL. There's some of that going on right now in Europe, and it's really hard to learn about it because it's in the German court system and. Um, they don't disclose the terms of ongoing litigation, so you can't, there are ways to find out. And there have been a few other examples like that, um, even from some large companies who decided that they wanted to collect um, royalties from Linux and Android code, and um, showed up at the doors of some of the OEMs around the world saying, well, we we actually have patents for the code inside that. Uh, In the community, Some communities are wonderful and open and friendly and others are very fractious and flaming and I don't want to say that simply is the way it is and you're not going to change it by fiat or by giving people you know uh, therapy or anything like that but for someone just coming into this business into the community side of it and trying to participate all the newbies out there or, or even people just switching communities you have to take the temperature of the community you're walking into and figure out what the right kind of dialogue is or you're not, you're not going to be happy. And in fact, this is a, a, a subject that we encounter a lot outside of North America, where not only do you have you know, basic cultural differences, but they don't even speak the same language. And so jumping into the more fractious communities is very painful. How do they contribute? Technically. Yeah. And we tell them, don't try to have a party. Contribute. Start at the bottom. You know, if you're an OEM, you're going to probably be contributing drivers to Linux or bug fixes to OpenStack or things like that. And accompany your, um, you know, follow the follow the technical style. Don't worry about the conversational style. Fa- uh, make sure you know if you're if you're filing bug reports that you have test cases. I mean, do just do all the basic stuff. Don't mm-hmm. don't rely on, like I said before, your corporate reputation. Go in and uh, earn your stripes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That 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 works for individuals too, by the way, not just companies.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that might be a good segue to um, developers that are out there watching who want their company to start getting more involved in open source, contributing, releasing their stuff. Like, what advice would you give them? Where do they? Do they, is there any resources you'd recommend they go to to figure
1: that out? Well, there's a couple of different questions embedded in that because one <laughs> of them is participating in existing projects, and the other is launching new ones. Okay. And you can do one without the other, and you can also, um, as, as a practice for either of them, some companies begin embracing inner source as a way to get ready for open source. That's where they put. So, inner describe inner source. How do you source, define that? Inner source. Um, is catching on in some places, like um, PayPal has a great inner source program, for example. It's where you use the methods of development and the physical tools, you might know, use using the same kind of repository tools and everything else, for development within your company that you would be using for development outside the company in open source communities. And so, like I said, some people view that as a great practice if they're interested in getting into open source. A lot of them have been contributing to open source either on an individual basis with their individual employees in a relatively ungoverned fashion or Their company has been doing so under under their corporate flag And they've figured out that wow, this really works. Well as a development paradigm. Let's try it inside Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just that they start uh, a Shared repo across the divisions of the group or within a within a division of the company and they put up some useful reusable code and it's only to promote reuse that's for the first stage
0: promote reuse. So one step into the open source world, let's get this code out there in a repo that's just inside of our company so people can start
1: seeing the value of sharing code. Right. And then you say, well, all right, so this is almost like a hobbyist level inside the company, Mm -hmm. but then other groups begin using it and you, you evolve eventually to the point where instead of cloning or forking selectively using code, you may have dozens and dozens of projects and in fact the shared repository becomes your primary build source instead of a secondary or tertiary one and the process can become thorough going but intersource has a totally different aspect that has to do with how you support the code and how you interact there's the concept of champions within the company who are participating um, outside of their assigned group to support other groups and to work in other people's scrums and in agile disciplines and it's a, a very interesting mm-hmm. paradigm that way. So you and, might have one person who's in charge of the Inner
0: Source project and uh, you know is sort of the maintainer of that. And that quote is getting used by different teams. And so at that point, you can step back and go, oh, do you see how useful this open source project is just within our company? Could you imagine if we open
1: this up to the world and the world could contribute to it? Well, or that we should be working with other communities that we're, whose code we're consuming presently, because often they're also consuming open source, mm-hmm. but not contributing and not participating. Mm-hmm. And, and can, contribution it seems to be the least common denominator, but there's plenty of things you can do to participate in an open source project besides just contributing. You can sponsor events. You can create documentation. You can provide bug reports and test cases. You can write test code, not just operational code. This stuff isn't as sexy, but somebody's got to do it. And ultimately, the people that do it receive kudos of one form or another. There are different ways to work your way into a community and be recognized. Mm, I think that's a really interesting message. So it's not just
0: uh, when you go to your boss and you start to convince them of the value um, and the ways that you can contribute. It's not just about committing code. No. It's about helping, participating. I'd like you to give some examples. It's about
1: maybe sponsoring the community. What else? Well, sponsoring events, sponsoring get-togethers, um, and but it's also the ancillary ancillary code, the test code, test cases, yeah. documentation. Bug reports, documentation. I'm working on a documentation project right now for a project that has eight million lines of code that is going to be launched in two weeks, mm-hmm. and we're finishing up. I have a team of writers working for me, and we're finishing up the wiki for a very complex and large uh, virtualized networking platform. And we're taking the documents that were from the different contributors pre-launch, and we're making sure that they're correctly licensed so that they can be shared, and we're converting a portion of that documentation into a very rich wiki, around 100 pages of wiki, and that will be backing up the project when it's launched. Okay, and how is this getting paid for? Oh, well, one of the leading lights in the project to be is funding it. One of the leading lights? Well, a a large... Large company. A large company. Is paying for... So is this code coming out of their company? Interestingly, yes. And if you actually... Two and two together, you can probably figure out who it is by going and doing some searching around the web. But I'm not going to talk about it just yet. I don't want to lessen the impact of the final announcement, the formal announcement, a couple of weeks. So is this that they they said,
0: hey, we want to. Re-, they reached out to the Linux Foundation, mm-hmm. said, hey, we want to release this code base. We want to put it out as open source. Mm-hmm. Could you please make sure that this goes well?
1: Yeah, <laughs> they their their board of directors. It's a it's a major major company. I mean, you mm-hmm. use them every day. Okay. in one form or another. Their board of directors uh, around a year ago said, we're going to take our platform in place, working code, which is very unusual when you launch a project, it's actually deployed, and we're going to make it open source, and we're going to bring together the, our peers and our ecosystem partners, and we're going to form a new initiative to support it. And it's going to be hosted at the Linux Foundation.
0: Oh, that's so interesting.
1: And so we did some, pre- my little group did some other projects around that whole process, and they liked our input so much on these other areas, they said, well, could you put together a team to take care of the documentation for us? And I smiled and said, absolutely.
0: (laughs) That's so interesting. Uh, Can you talk about, besides documentation, what what did they lean on you for? What did you do for
1: them? Um, Our group started out by reviewing their strategy and presenting alternatives and analyzing financial models of what it would take Basically supporting their decision, for example, on what it will cost to sustain the code over time as open source versus proprietary, and there were some other alternatives. You know, different parameters were, were varied accordingly, and we plugged them into a financial model that we created. Oh, this is so fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I help uh, local tech
0: startups here in Orlando. And just to hear more about the open source business model,
1: it's opening my mind in so many ways. So I appreciate so it. many. I, I will have to contradict you, though. We don't say open source is a business model. There are open source business models. Open source is a development methodology that can be monetized in a bunch of different ways. And there are four basic ver- variations on it, and then there's maybe 13 permutations on that. So I'll, I'll name the four. Okay. You can do what you want with them. The first one is that your product is open source. Like Red Hat. Perfect example. Absolutely Red Hat. And, and many others, but like some of the um, NoSQL databases today are great examples. Uh-huh. So that's where they, they sell support and Well, enterprise. there's a secondary business model that complements it. You can have a subscription model for support or supply. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a dual license model that says... You can use this code for non-commercial purposes, but the moment you put it in a paid product, you owe us a royalty. And there's ways to enforce that. It's not my favorite model, but there are people that do that. Okay. So you know, my product is open source to a greater or lesser degree. That's the first model. Mm-hmm. The second model is um, on open source. So some one of the sub-models of that is often called open core. So you take a piece of open source software and you wrap some kind of proprietary value add around the outside of it. You do it with a careful licensing discipline and you deliver a product. So an example of that would be Atlassian Jira, which is the bug tracking system. Okay. And while they do make it available freely for foundations, it is essentially a proprietary product based on open source. And, and you could look at um, propri- Android phones. Like what, like we say proprietary product based on, you like buy based a license. on what open source? Um, I don't remember the exact. Product components. I mean, there is there are big chunks of Jira that are strictly speaking open source, okay. but I think one that people will be more familiar with is Android phones. Okay. So Android is a mostly open source project. Um, it actually has a lot of sub projects. It's sponsored by Google, but also by a lot of other people in the Open Handset Alliance. But a phone is a proprietary thing, and while there are some Android phones you can reflash freely that are based on the Android open source project, like Sony has a whole line of phones like that. Um, most phones, you can't reflash freely or you're, you're jailbreaking them. And you may be violating your contract with your carrier. <laughs> so, and right. but that's definitely based on open source. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many, and open, open core is one is the enterprise term. And in, for devices, it's kind of a given that you're building on open source. Okay, And then there's four open source, and that is you have a product or a service that is um, designed to help people with open source. So it might be training, education, it might be GitHub, it might be tools, like there was a series of emulators for, for developing embedded systems that were geared entirely at Linux and nothing else. Or a service for continuous integration. Absolutely. And then the fourth one is building your business on open source, so an enterprise that uses open source in its operational software. So, you know, I'm, I, my CRM is an open-source CRM. My uh, internal applications are built on this stack of 80 open-source components. Oh, so you're just saying, like, the products that we build
0: are... Wait, I'm kind of lost, because I feel like... Operations. Oh, just, oper- just internal operations. Internal operations. Just using the open-source for internal. Absolutely. Okay, because yeah, that, the second one and the fourth one, I think, it were confusing, because the second one is just... I'm going to use open source
1: tools and then put it in a proprietary that's right. A, create that's a product. the second one. The first one second is one. it's totally open source, like Red Hat. Right. And Red Hat's value add so is pro- from support, which is a, which is a right. for open source. Plus they they have you know their value add is in an installers and configuration tools and secondary products. Right. So my product might be.
0: Basecamp, for example, yeah, right where I have, it's on the Rails stack, but there's a proprietary code that sits on top of that, which then creates Basecamp, which people can subscribe to. Right.
1: And realize, these four basic silos are not mutually exclusive. They're, they're most useful in clever combinations. Got it. Okay. And the fourth one is
0: more about using open source tools internally operations. Right. Got it. Cool. Um, I have a slide on that I'll share with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think I did see, and we'll link to this in the show notes, that there's some really great uh, presentations that you can get access to over at the Linux Foundation Mm -hmm. where you talk about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last final question I've got is what would you love to see people build more of in the open source community? Wow.
1: I think you said maybe something about IoT. Well, IoT is very important and near and dear to my heart because I spent so many years in embedded. And so IoT is sort of the new connected, ubiquitous embedded. Um, At the Linux Foundation, we have two, now three, separate initiatives around IoT. But when I look out at the world of devices, like I have some webcams in, in the house that I use to watch my dogs when I'm out of the house, for example, And they suffer as a category from two big problems. One is that they've got lots of proprietary code in them and they're designed only to work with um, devices from their own brand. So the the Mm. suppliers have siloized them. Um, And certainly open source and the de facto standards that go along with open source would make for a lot better interoperability. So I wouldn't be locked into a single brand or have to acquire, Software that merges, you know, that 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 bridges the gaps. Actually, there's some very nice home security software that's open source that will support all different brands Mm -hmm. of software, but um, it only runs on Windows. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I've actually tried it out on a virtual machine on top of Linux, but it's not the way I usually like to work. And Mm -hmm. I've 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 begun doing it myself, but it's a lot of work. So that's one of the issues. And the other is that whether they're based on open source or not, um, the IoT of course is showing up all of the deficiencies in security because these devices are not well supported by their manufacturers. And so they end up with deprecated versions of software in them which carry vulnerabilities and they're not updated on a regular basis or they require that you, you know, my favorite one is for like a security camera, you have to take the camera off the wall. March over and plug it in with Ethernet to update it every couple of weeks, and that's just not practical. And so they, they don't they don't update in place and mm. update in place of all kinds is a, is a drag. And so security right now, security broadly speaking, is one of the biggest challenges. And I spent a lot of time last year talking about automotive security, for example, based on open source.
0: Mm. Interesting. So um, I'm, I, I see. I'm formulating in my. I've got a statement in my head formulating that's kind of a different way of looking at software. I'm curious if you've got a similar statement where it's something like, um, if you think creating proprietary software is the best solution, you're just wrong.
1: You know, I won't say that, and that that may seem like anathema. But when we sit down with our clients in our consulting business, Mm And they'll say, well, we we think we should make this open source. We ask them a lot of tough questions and make sure it really is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. It's not a foregone conclusion that at that moment in time, it's the right thing to do. I mean, sort of the worst case for wanting to make something open source is that it's deprecated software. You have a user base, but they're not giving you any revenue. And so you're going to throw it over the wall. (laughs) And it'll probably just die a grisly death, and those users Unless you're lucky and among those users are people with a community sensibility who will pick it up and start doing things with it, the community won't simply form and be successful by itself. You have to nurture it. You have to nurture it. So if you've got, if you're building proprietary
0: software that you think other people around the world would also find useful for their own businesses. Um, and you have the motivation to nurture and create a community, Mm -hmm. you have no reason not to open source it, because if you do it right, it's going to
1: benefit your business. It will, but the prerequisite is that you actually understand your own value added. And there's lots of companies that don't. You understand your own value added. In the legacy world of proprietary software most companies think about a vertically integrated added value. My whole product, whatever it might be, is my value, and I can't decompose it. Open source, when you apply it to something like that, you apply the principles, you begin to decompose it and say, well, you know, all right, is it the housing? Is it the color of the case? Is it the user interface? Is it the operating system? And when you begin to decompose legacy products, you'll find out that usually the value-add is this little thin skin somewhere at the top of the software stack and some part of the hardware and design and technology, and that everything else is commoditizable, and that everything else is just a cost. It doesn't add value. But if a company hasn't stepped back and recognized that, you have an emperor's new clothes situation. So you're saying you have to figure
0: out where your core value comes from. Mm -hmm. So you have a product, but really, where's the piece that's unique Mm-hmm. To you
1: and what you can produce. Right. It might be technology, it might be a service, it might be the way you market it, it might be your channel. So you really have to look at it from a holistic business approach. Simply saying I'm going to open source the code is ignoring the context of the code.
0: Okay, I'm trying to follow.
1: This is a little bit confusing to me. I, I, I understand. It's, we, we tend to think of, you know, I gave you a bunch of reasons why open, making something open source is good. Mm -hmm. lowering the cost of maintenance engaging a larger community Mm -hmm. uh, determining de facto standards is a great way and you can do this defensively and you can do it offensively you can devalue your competitor's product by making yours open source and it lessens their ability to charge for their legacy proprietary product there's all sorts of interesting sub-strategies like that Mm -hmm. but it's not simple that you say you wake up one day and say well I have 30 million lines of code we're going to make them open source isn't that great I mean, there's not having a strategy to do anything in life, anything in business, is a bad idea. <laughs> and in the world of business, we're often called in, is our consulting practice, where a CEO has done the analysis, figured out where the value is, spent a lot of time with engineering, segmented the product, and then the board of directors says, Oh my god are you kidding yeah we invested so many millions of dollars and you're gonna give it away and and so we've done a lot of projects where we're we're the um, backup to the um, CEO who is in a battle with the board of directors to change their business model I I don't doubt that at all Um, that's really great But it's not a foregone conclusion. We don't go into into, uh, an engagement where we say, oh, we know it has to be open source. We usually figure it out more quickly. Right. You want to help them. Yeah, you got to help them. Where's the,
0: yeah, what should they open source? What pieces of the software should
1: they open source? Should they do it in the first place? How should they license it? How does the license support or not their business model?
0: interesting so you probably even go and speak to the other companies who might want to use the software
1: mm-hmm. we look at it holistically we look at the ecosystem we look oh, at their channel man. how does the channel benefit from it is this a pure software offering to begin with is it integrated right and if they put it out there is there really going to be want from other people's to Absolutely. actually use it
0: are they going to be contributors to it Are they willing to be a part of it to make it go further? And yeah, that's so interesting.
1: Well, I mean, I'll give you two examples that are pretty high level. Like this project I just mentioned for documentation. It's an ecosystem play because the role of the original contributor, there's only a handful of their kind of companies in the world. Very few. Mm -hmm. But if you then add to the ecosystem other people in telecom, hardware manufacturers who sell into telecom, who would be interested in virtualizing network nodes, for example, which is a big trend now, and the integrators that support it, the ecosystem multiplies out and all of a sudden, there's a lot of really good reasons to make this open source. Mm -hmm. But if you only look at their peers, it it can be very questionable. And there's another project with another company that I'm working with where they have a a cloud storage project that they launched. Mm -hmm. And it's got really cool technology But it doesn't engage the ecosystem in just the right way, and so they're having trouble with adoption. And we'll probably sit down with them and try to figure out how to tweak the appeal so that the the right kinds of companies will want to use it.
0: That's so interesting
1: uh, to think about open
0: source adoption strategy at that level. Is not something I've ever thought about.
1: Well, I know I started out, you know, with desktop Linux and GCC before that, and uh-huh. and so it would be like, well, that's a really cool library, you know, why wouldn't somebody want to use it? But on the, <laughs> on the flip side is, yeah, how do I sad. promote a runtime library? It's kind of banal. Oh my god! But now we're looking at you know whole application frameworks and and cloud networking systems and. You name it, 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 the world has become a much more complicated place. That's so interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I work with startups, and they're doing customer validation, correct? Because everybody thinks if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. I can build this product, and I can get it out there. But uh, I didn't realize, like, even at the open source level, like, let's take the time to do our customer validation so that if we put out this piece of... Open source. We know already there are going to be additional contributors. So it's and there will be
1: other communities that will liaise and that will use your code in their platforms and projects and vice versa. It's it's not just about your customers. It's about ecosystem, including community. That's and, fascinating. And the same, what you just said about you know, if they if we build it, they will come. If we open it, will they adopt? <laughs> yeah. So this is what I spend my days thinking about and. It's kind of, you asked me earlier when we were chatting about, okay, so what's my passion? Mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds really awful to say, well, open source business models for my passion. It's <laughs> that's, that's like double geeky. But it, it is. It's what I spend my time thinking about and how to help these companies and how to help communities mm-hmm. succeed. Because there's, you know, you go look at GitHub, don't look at don't, don't GitHub. Look at the old, <laughs> look at SourceForge. Okay. Look at the legacy platforms, which have a lot of vibrant projects on them, but they've got a lot of dead wood. Why aren't those other projects thriving? Because they didn't do this kind of analysis, because they would throw it over the wall.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you
0: for joining us, Bill, on Open Craft. You've opened my eyes on a lot of things that are going on that I had no idea, that sort of open source business strategy. Um, yeah. This has been awesome. Um, if you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to us on iTunes. We've got some exciting interviews lined up over the next few weeks. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and if you want to watch us record these videos live, maybe take a look at our live schedule as well. And uh, thanks again, Bill. It's a real pleasure, thank you for coming. It's been